wrong time to do it. It's, it's difficult to both be passionate about justice and passionate about mercy. Passionate about both and love them both because they're both righteous. God is justice. And God is merciful. Time frame and place. It's easy sometimes for us to want to sound merciful by going, you know, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. He didn't mean that bad. You know, come on, we should be nice. It can seem like a nice thing in America to say, well, maybe we should do away with capital punishment, and maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't, you know, we need to reduce prison sentences maybe, because come on, we want to be merciful, don't we? And that might be getting mercy in the wrong place where justice is due in some of those situations. Likewise, we can get justice wrong and be passionate about neighbors and people around us getting what's coming to them because they've grieved us, and what we ought to want for them is mercy. We can want justice sometimes and in the wrong places, and we can want mercy sometimes and in the wrong, wrong, uh, wrong places. But both are from God. Today, the Apostle Paul comforts the Thessalonian church. He comforts them by telling them about the coming judgment of God. And the purpose of him talking about the coming judgment of God today is not to scare them or frighten them. It's not to make them shape up. The entire reason why he mentions it in this passage is to comfort them. So how, how can a Christian be comforted by the coming judgment of God? Let's pray together and let's read this passage and see. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I pray that you would help us to hear your word today and help us to know your word. I pray that you would give us the strength to believe it and to obey it. Father God, I pray that as those hearing your word today hear it, they wouldn't receive it with hardened hearts, but that they would receive it with warm affection and love your word and its arrival. Father, if anybody does not know you today, I pray that you would bring them to conversion by the power of your word and your spirit. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says to the church, perhaps we'll start reading today in verse 5. We'll start reading today in verse 5 for a complete sentence. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven with His powerful angels, when He takes vengeance with a flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength on that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be marveled at by all those who believed, because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of His calling, and by His power 
fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you glorified by Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Jesus, or sorry, Paul says, Jesus is coming from heaven with powerful angels to take his vengeance with a flaming sword on all those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the way he comforts the saints. It might seem that this is all true, and you know this is true, you dear Christians, but it may seem unusual to say, there, there, I have comfort for you. The righteous sword of the Lord is coming against enemies of His. That may be an unusual thing to comfort. Frequently, if you are in your time of need or having challenges and difficulties, I, 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 as your pastor, might come to you for comforting you, but I don't usually come to you and comfort you saying, there, there, the Lord is about to come in vengeance and bring destruction against your enemies. They're there. It's because the thing that you're suffering that you need comfort from is typically not persecution. But this Thessalonian church is suffering great persecution. If I come to you and try to comfort you because you're dealing with a family crisis, then I'll talk about God who brings peace, and the peace of the Lord will be your comfort in the middle of relational crisis. If you're struggling with health issues, then I'll come to you and bring comfort and the comfort that I'll bring to you is that God is a great healer. But even though we all go to die, Jesus promises resurrection for all those who trust in Him, and in that we take great comfort. But if it's hard for you to understand why this coming judgment of the Lord is comforting, it is perhaps because you've faced little persecution in your life, and this is the grace of God. The odds are very high that you've faced little persecution in your life and that I have faced very little persecution in our life, and thanks be to God and God bless America. What a, what a wonderful opportunity we have and what a great place we live in, how gracious God has been to us to have such little persecution in our lives, but this is not true of many Christians around us now. It's not true for many Christians in the history of the world, and it was most certainly not true for these Thessalonians that Paul was writing to. You might remember in the book of Acts, as soon as Paul starts this church, it causes a great civil uproar, and people are furious at these people, changing, repenting, not willing to participate in the social religions of their country, and Paul is quickly about to be stoned and has to be snuck out of the city. And the persecution doesn't end when Paul is gone. These believers are still facing serious persecution. How do you take judgment seriously? And how do you become comforted by it? You'll be comforted by justice, which is the same word as judgment, yes? Judgment, justice, these are the same words. You'll be comforted by God's justice when you've experienced injustice, when you've experienced persecution, when people have attacked you because of your faith like they are this church, then Paul is able to say to them with all comfort, just wait. The Lord is going to come and bring justice into the injustice that's happened to you. After all, he says, it is only right, verse 6, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. 
This is justice, he says. It's clearly justice. You like justice, right? This is justice for God to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. And it is just to give relief to you who are afflicted. These things are good, and they're not to be forgotten. And yet, we in the world have regularly forgotten these things. It's happened again and again. It happened very prominently at the end of the 19th century. The end of the 19th century, so that's the end of the 1800s. Uh, 1870s through 1910, everything's going really well. There's no wars going on anymore in Europe. And so, like, Western civilization, Europe, America, all these countries, just thriving and doing great. And new technology is showing up everywhere. Now, now, instead of sailing across the ocean and it taking months, you can go by a steamboat. And it takes a lot less time. Now you can travel by train. You can get everywhere quickly. It's so convenient. Not only has the telegraph arrived, but the telephone is now popular. 1876 was when Alexander Graham Bell makes the first phone call. With all this progress, there was so much hope in man, and there was so much optimism about our ability to understand and think through the world. And so two philosophies became popular, two, I'll call them religions, naturalism, this idea that there's nothing spiritual, but rather everything is material and can be understood by scientific inquiry. We can not only understand everything, but if you can understand it, then you're just one step away from controlling it. If you can understand how these things work, then you can harness them and control them, and nothing will be impossible for you. And so, naturalism, and then its partner, scientism, the idea that science is what's going to create salvation for us. Become popular. Another one, you don't have to remember these, but another one, positivism, which is the idea that there are no real facts, nothing is true except investigatable, scientifically demonstrable facts, which is to say, there's no real such thing as good, which is to say, there's no real such thing as evil. I mean, if all of this stuff is conquerable, if all of it is understandable, then really, the differences between people is not the difference between good and evil, it's just the difference between sentiments and preferences. Stop me if you've heard this one, because it became popular for the first time in Western civilization at the end of the 19th century, but it hasn't ever gone away, and there's always somebody who, if things are peaceful enough, will start saying, well, you know, it's not really good or bad, all there is is, you know, materialism. There's just scientific facts, and that's all that really matters this, what you call good, somebody else calls evil. Different civilizations have their different things, and so it's just a difference of sentiments. It became popular back at that time, but then a great world event happened that disabused anybody of this notion. What was it? World War I, and if that wasn't enough, World War II, and suddenly everybody has a firsthand glimpse again of the reality of evil. Everybody sees the videos of what was happening, the early camera reels of what was going on in the concentration camps, and no longer is it going to be sufficient for anyone to simply say, oh, they just had different sentiments. Oh, Hitler just had different sentiments. No. It's in fact the reality of evil that wakes many people up to the reality of good in that situation. You can't ignore the fact again and again that the world is evil. And so you can't ignore the fact that there must be good as well. Neither can you ignore the fact that it is right to punish evil. Justice is a good thing. 
not punishing evil. It's not merciful. Not punishing evil is, in fact, wrong to those who suffer injustice. Rather, it's right to give justice to those who are harmed and attacked. All right, that's a long story to say. Do you understand how this church could be comforted by the justice and judgment of God? Because they knew real evil. They were facing it every day. You and I are too, but don't lose sight of it. Don't forget just how evil the world can be, simply because God has been very, very gracious to us, and generally we live in a great degree of peace with a great degree of truth and justice. Don't forget the evil of this world, and so don't forget to rejoice at the coming judgment of God. This is good news because there is such evil in the world, and He will bring justice. And we need to go on a long, we need to go on a long trip of talking about justice there in general for you to remember first, generally, that there's evil in the world. All right. Have I convinced you? You remember now that the world's evil and justice is good? All right. Well, now, step two. You need to also remember your own personal evil. We Christians don't just believe there's a bunch of really evil people and evil forces out there in the world and God's going to bring judgment against them, but second, then you have to make it personal and remember that there's a lot of evil in here too, and judgment comes against me. The story of King David being convicted about his sins with Bathsheba is so, powerfully, is so powerful to us because it's kind of an everyman story. We've all dealt with it. Maybe not in specific terms of the same sin, but in the answer that comes to him from the prophet. You see, King David took another man's wife. There's no more to the story than that. He saw a woman, he saw she was beautiful, and he said, hey, you come over here, and he took another man's wife. And then it gets worse. To try and cover it up, he has that man killed. He sends him off to the… This guy was a soldier fighting for David and the kingdom, and instead of honoring him for his sacrifices, he sends him to the front to make sure that he will be killed. And he is. So then… The woman grieves, and as soon as the period of grief is over with, because David's a righteous man after all, after the period of grief is over with, he takes her as his wife. She conceives and is pregnant with child. And that's it for David. He's just going to get on with the rest of his life after that. You and I understand the shocking evil that has happened here, right? But David doesn't. See, he can recognize evil in the world, but he can't see it in himself. So a prophet comes up to David, a prophet named Nathan, and Nathan says, ah, David, they know each other, they're friends. He says, ah, David, I, I, need a, I have a question about justice for you and, and good judgment. Can you give me some good judgment? Uh, there's a rich man, and there's a poor man, and they live right next to each other, and the rich man has flocks and flocks of sheep. The guy is super wealthy, and the poor guy has one single little baby lamb, and he loves this little baby lamb so much, they named it. You know, you understand, a, a, a line has been crossed between livestock and pet, right? Uh, one guy has some lamb, and they are livestock. That means you count them by how much pounds of meat is on that animal uh, when you get hungry. But this one has a name. It's a pet. It's in the household. He says, the poor man, he had his one little lamb, and he raised it in his house with his own children, and the lamb ate from the table with them, and it was a sweet little lamb. And the rich man had a neighbor, a friend who came in from out of town to feast. And you know what the rich man did? The guy with all of the flocks, he took that little pet lamb, not one of his livestock, he took the pet, the neighbor's pet, and he had it slaughtered for a meal for his guest. 
And so Nathan the prophet says, uh, King, I, I need to know if, what, what you think about justice in this situation. And Scripture says, David burned with anger against that man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of that had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah, and you took his wife to be your own, and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took another man's wife as your own. This is what justice and judgment look like. If you're Uriah, the man who is killed, then the justice of God is good and right. It doesn't look so good and right to David. We, first of all, Christians, if we're going to understand this passage, we have to remember the seriousness and the reality of evil out there in the world and how good it is that God is going to bring justice for all victims of injustice. But then we also need to look inside our own lives just like this and hear from the word of the Lord, you are that man, just like David did. Nobody comes to Christ until they first wake up to their own sins and realize, I am not okay. Just like you have to become aware of evil in the world, you have to become aware of your own sins. In the past few years, there's been a bit of an uncovering of a sex abuse crisis in the SBC. Not more sex abuse than in other churches or other denominations, but the fact that there were many who were in leadership in the SBC who were unwilling to do anything about it. They kept hearing it, and they would do nothing, and said, oh, our hands are tied. We can't do anything. They're all independent churches. And it wasn't true. There was a big crisis, and they knew about it, and they could have said something, and they didn't do anything. And then there's a temptation for various Christians to, to look at those who had neglected to do something when they had heard about it and say, well, you know, let's show some mercy on these guys. They did the best they could. They're doing the best they could with what they had. But mercy there would not be justice for these women who are abused. So rather, justice needs to come and needs to come from God in that situation and in our own lives. We not only must remember evil in the world to be comforted by God's judgment, but we have to be, remember evil in our own lives if we're going to be comforted by God's mercy and grace. See, that's what this passage talks about, not just the coming of the Lord and the vengeance of the Lord, but also Verse 10, on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who believed, because our testimony among you was believed. There's no in-between 
there is the coming of Christ in judgment and to glorify. Those are the options. And there's only one dividing line. It is those who believed, everybody under the justice and coming justice of the Lord, except for those who have heard and believed this message. Christ desires mercy for you rather than judgment. We have done wrong and been the evil ones like David, but Christ's desire for you is that you should be shown mercy and not judgment that you deserve. God wants your salvation, and anyone can have it if they'll renounce themselves as Lord and instead make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Jesus came preaching one message. This is the gospel that he proclaimed, repent and believe. And everybody who repents and believes is saved. That's the good news. And so the only question between Thessalonians persecuted and Thessalonians persecuting, they all heard the message. Some of them believed that there was a God who was coming to bring justice, that they were objects of judgment, and yet God was gracious to them and those who heard and did not believe. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, and so you struggle, you know, you don't yet, I said, to become a Christian, you have to first recognize your depravity, your need for God, just how wrong and sinful you are. All of us did. Uh, We who are Christians, we came to a point where God opened our eyes to just how sinful we were and how much we needed salvation. And until you get that point where God opens your eyes, then you go, ah, that's nice for you guys if it makes you live better, but I'm all right, I live a pretty good life. But if you're with us today and you think like this still, you think, ah, well, you know, I'm all right, I live a pretty good life. I I have a task for you today. Simply go and pray to God this. Go and pray, God, if I've done evil, open my eyes to it. And he will answer this prayer. It costs you nothing, but it might be a good start towards you knowing the true God. If I have done sins, if I am evil, wake me up to it. Open my eyes to the sin in my life. I mean, this most powerful thing happens to King David, where God sends a prophet to wake him up with a powerful story. And this happens to all of us. It happened to the prodigal son, who, living a filthy life in a filthy place, suddenly comes to his senses and says, what am I doing? Pray to God likewise and say, I don't really believe that I'm that evil. I haven't really done that bad. I live a decent life. But if you have trouble seeing this in your own life and believing, simply pray to God and ask Him to wake you up, and He will. I promise, He will. And then you need to do what David did. David hears this from the prophet of the Lord And do you know what his response was? David said, as one does, Yeah, well, Nathan, you're not perfect either. Let me tell you what you've done wrong. Entirely too often when someone's confronted with their sins, that's the answer, is it not? Maybe you know this personally because you've been confronted by your spouse who said, Hey, listen. And you go, Well, let me tell you about you. In a church, sometimes it goes like this. If I say, hey, you need to change something, somebody will say, well, let's go read the bylaws. You're not doing it right either. This is the way it goes. But you know what David did? David immediately says, 
I was wrong. I've done a great evil, and I repent. And he fell on his knees before the Lord, and he repented. David still struggled over the consequences of his sin, but the Lord forgave him and was gracious to him because that's what God wanted for David. So what are you going to do when God wakes you up to your sins? Repent. Confess them immediately. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Grieve over it. Then trust that the Lord's desire is mercy and not judgment for you. If we're going to understand this passage of 2 Thessalonians, we're going to understand both what they were saved of and the ongoing judgment in their life and how good the justice of God is, but how greater for all of us the grace of God is. We get it wrong a lot of times. We offer judgment when we should be offering grace. We offer grace when we should be offering justice. And we don't know which one to do in which situation or in which measure, but God always gets it right. And that is, judgment is deserved, but He would rather have you receive mercy. And so He Himself took upon Himself the wrath that we all deserve on the cross. Thanks be to God, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation left for you who are in Christ Jesus. Finally, Paul offers a prayer to this church that he loves. Verse 11, he says, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of His calling and by His power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how do you pray for a bunch of people who are persecuted? How do you pray for a bunch of people persecuted? Paul writes to them, he says, here's what I'm praying for you guys. And you might think the first thing would be that they'd stop being persecuted. You might think the first thing that Paul would pray for them is (laughs) that it would ease up. And Paul declares for them already, he knows that justice is coming. But what Paul says is, here's what I'm praying for you. In the meantime, I'm praying this, that God will make you worthy of His calling. There is justice, but God is gracious and patient. He was patient towards you, and He is patient towards more people. So justice comes, but in the meantime, God is patient. He has not just loved us so much to die on the cross for our sins, but He's loved us to patiently wait for more to come and trust Him. There will be challenging times in this world if you follow Christ, and the answer here is, here's how we're going to pray for you, that God would make you worthy of His calling. Uh, I've told you several times, I think, perhaps, about my uh, dear, dear affection for Tony Dungy, the former NFL coach, he was coach of the Colts, won a Super Bowl with him, no big deal, and now he's a commentator and uh, calls games, and I love Tony Dungy so much. Uh, Tony Dungy is the coach of my heart, is the way I say it. He, I, he writes excellent books on leadership. He's a great Christian guy. In fact, uh, Meredith and I's daily devotional book, we don't actually do it every day. We try to, and, but we do our separately. But if we try to at night, I'll do one together after our morning separate one. I've got Tony Dungy's daily devotional on my bedside. Some of you like Spurgeon's daily devotional. It's fantastic, his morning and evenings. But you might try Tony Dungy's. Uh, and so we go to bed and I go, all right, what's Tony D got to say to us tonight? Uh, what's the uncommon key from him? I love Tony Dungy. I love how kind and how gracious he is. He's not only a serious person and a serious coach who works hard, 
but he also loves the Lord, and he is kind and gracious to people, and yet he periodically gets treated terribly. It happened again in the last week or two, and it's happened several times before, where because he's a Christian and he doesn't follow the way of the world, he gets lambasted for it. And so this past week, there were some, some people were complaining because he, he doesn't believe in gay marriage. He's a, he's a Christian. This marriage is what God calls marriage to be. God created it. He gets to name it. So he's a Christian, just like we are. No surprise here that Christians believe Christian things, and he's kind, and he's gracious, and it just goes to show you that it doesn't matter how kind you are, and it doesn't matter how gracious you are. There's an evil world out there that wants to do evil because you follow Christ. So what's the answer when you've received that evil? You know, what's Tony Dungy do? He says, all right, now it's time to get even. And he leaves that grace and kindness behind, and he starts throwing chairs like other coaches and starts getting mad at people. He takes to Twitter, and he starts saying, yeah, well, let me tell you about y'all. He goes on the offense, and he goes and gets what's his. You know, many people believe this is the right answer, right? Let's be kind and gracious, and then when somebody's a jerk to you, oh, now they're going to get it from me. Right? But what does this passage say to do? What does Paul say? These, the church, the Thessalonian church is under persecution, and they are supposed to be following Jesus Christ who was kind and gracious and did not uh, speak a word in his own defense before his accusers. And then the Thessalonian church reaches all this persecution. What do they do? They take to social media. What do they do? They start protesting. They, they form a political alliance, and they seize political power. Now, listen, God has called you to be kind and gracious. The word is this. In view of all of this, we pray that our God will make you worthy of His calling. Dear Christian, you are to be kind and gracious and to love others with the same love that Christ has loved you. And when they do evil against you, you are to love others with the same love that Christ had loved you and be kind and be gracious. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will bring His justice, but He brought grace to you, and He wants to bring it to others as well. This is perhaps more terrifying to you than the judgment of God itself, the grace of God. But there it is. And so my prayer for you, if you face any persecution, like our brothers and sisters in China or Tony D or anybody else, my prayer for you will be this, that even so, you would live up to the calling to being like Jesus Christ that you would be the kind of person who lays down your life for those who are even trying to do evil against you. Second, Paul says this to them. First, view of this, we pray that our God will make you worthy of His calling. And second, and by His power to fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. Don't let any evil done against you slow you down. 
from being the person that God has called you to be and from doing the work that God has called you to do. We live in an evil world and there is plenty of evil to go around. We ourselves are evil sinners and there's plenty that will distract us from doing the work that God has called us to do. But the goal amidst all of it is that you would act like Christ and do the work of Christ. So we will pray for you that you will yet remain in the love of Christ and that you will bear the fruit of his work. That is meaning, that means bringing many others to glory. And finally, he prays this. Paul says, verse 12, all of this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you glorified by him. After all, what he did at the beginning in your life of lifting you up out of your sins, that's what glorification is, is lifting somebody up. His desire is to see you lifted up out of your sins, first of all, but then to be seated with him in the heavenly places and have eternity with him. God's desire is your glorification. You may think that's a little too much, but that's what the Bible says here. So our desire is His glorification, that Christ would be lifted high, that the name of Jesus, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be praised above all names because God really is this good. He is this good to bring justice for all evil, and He is this good to bring mercy for all of us sinners. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son. And praise the Spirit three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. All the redeemed, washed by His blood, come and rejoice in His great love. Praise Him. Hallelujah. Christ has defeated every sin. So cast all your burden now on Him. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Father God, oh, great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are good and You are just. And the only thing I know greater than Your justice is Your mercy and love. And I thank You that You've been so kind to me and so merciful to me, and that you lifted me up out of my own sinful life. And I pray you would do it to many others here today and around us. Father God, let the congregation praise you with all their voices and with all their hearts today. Be glorified and lifted up by us. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to, in fact,